This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. You're listening to Knowledge at Wharton on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Here again is Dan Loney. Welcome back. Hour number two of Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 111, Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Thanks for spending part of your day with us. We are a decade out from the Great Recession and the financial crisis, yet there are still many questions being asked about that period in history. One is, could it happen again? The estimations are that there will be another recession at some point uh, in the next decade or two. The hope is, though, that it won't be significant, as significant, as the one we saw several years ago. The other part to the story is, did we learn anything from it? The answer may be no. Since we see things like the Wells Fargo scandal still pop up or the issues surrounding Deutsche Bank and more. Tam Bayumi is deputy director in in the strategy, policy and review department at the International Monetary Fund. He has authored a new book uh, about the topic titled Unfinished Business, the Unexplored Causes of the Financial Crisis and Lessons Yet to be Learned. And he joins us now today from Washington, D.C. Tam, great to have you on the show with us. Thank you for your time. Dan, fantastic to talk to you. Thank you. Um, Did you find as many questions about the true understanding of what happened as seemingly are out there and we seemingly run into doing this show on a weekly basis? Well, what I tried to do with this book was to look not at the immediate causes, which is what a lot of people have focused in on. So we've had a lot of books about the rating agencies and about things like this. What I tried to do is take a step back and tell a story about the deep origins of the crisis. So what were the deep forces that led to a situation where the failure of a medium-sized U.S. bank plunged the entire North Atlantic area into a deep, deep recession and the euro area into a uh, full-blown depression? So... When What do you think is the greatest mystery still out there about the financial crisis? Well, I think there are a couple of things which are not well understood. One is it was a North Atlantic crisis. It was neither a global crisis. Some people call it the global crisis. And other people focus on either the U.S. side or the European side. In my view, those two sides were intimately linked. And, uh, in fact... A very a significant part of the financing for both the problems in the U.S. and the problems in Southern Europe came from the Northern European banks. They were, if you like, a very central role in the entire story. We're talking with Tam Bayumi, who is the author of the book Unfinished Business, The Unexplored Causes of the Financial Crisis and the Lessons Yet to be Learned. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. Because this was a a, a North American, North Atlantic crisis, uh, the fact that, looking forward for a second, uh, the fact that we still see instances where banks are involved in in various uh, nefarious schemes out there, is is it concerning to you and, and a variety of people out there that that banks to a degree feel like they are they are untouchable and not even too big to fail, but too big to be touched? 
Well, certainly, I think that there is a feeling that, given the size of the crisis, the banking uh, banking system has become uh, stronger than you might expect. But I think that the most important thing here is that regulation has been tightened, including on the investment banks. Part of my story is to understand the difference between the commercial banks, people like Wells Fargo, and the investment banks, people like Morgan Stanley. And there was a difference in the way that they were regulated, and that allowed a lot of the excesses to occur. Much of that has been uh, dealt with, but there's still quite a lot of work still to be done. Uh, a lot of people talk about the impact that that, that Dodd-Frank has had, uh, obviously, in this country. And obviously, there's concern about whether or not uh, Dodd-Frank will be uh, changed in, in the years to come. But when you look back at it, without Dodd-Frank, uh, we could we could have been looking at, at a variety of other crises, crises coming our way. Oh, yes. And I think that the uh, Dodd-Frank legislation was really good. In fact, as you say, I think that the real question at this point is what will happen to that legislation going forward? And in particular, for example, I just mentioned this difference between commercial banks and investment banks. And part of my story is that the investment banks were not very well regulated, and that allowed a lot of excesses to happen. I think that the worry of uh, bringing back uh, some version of Glass-Steagall, the separation between commercial banking and investment banking is a real concern. Why do you think that that we got to the point where financial regulation, if you go back uh, a couple of decades, was relatively lax, and there were there weren't, you know, there wasn't a concern about the banking industry as obviously there is today? Well, actually, the U.S. commercial banks uh, were reasonably well regulated. The real story of a loss in regulation was in Europe, where what happened was the regulators allowed the major northern European banks to use their own internal risk models to calculate capital. There was loose regulation of the investment banking industry, but there the story is less that the regulations got looser, rather it's that the investment banking industry got so much larger. And it really... I'm sorry, go ahead. So in 1970, investment banks had their own assets were 2% of GDP. By 2008, their own assets were 30% of GDP, and yet there was no change in their regulation. And this truly was uh, an event that, you know, it it, it started here in in North America, and then it carried over to Europe and and obviously had an impact there for a long period of time. Well, yes. Uh, As I mentioned earlier, part of my story is that it was the North European banks which financed quite a lot of both the U.S. uh, subprime mortgages and the excesses in Southern Europe. So that actually, when the U.S. and Southern Europe went into crisis, it went back to Northern Europe. And that's what made it a North Atlantic crisis. And in fact, you know, there was very significant problems in Northern Europe. In fact, Europe essentially went through its own banking crisis. What was the regulatory landscape going back in history? Was it similar when you went back 20 or 30 years to what the U.S. Uh, was basically set? Well, 
the story in the U.S. is is a relatively similar regulatory landscape. What happened there was that the fulcrum of the banking system moved from commercial banking to investment banking, and there was a difference, and the investment banks were much less uh, tightly regulated. But in Europe, the story was different. In Europe, the major banks became more and more... um, uh, became less and less strong because they were allowed to use their own internal risk models. And this was a decision made in the mid-90s, which took a long time to play out, since it wasn't until 2008 that the crisis actually happened. And and that's, I I think, the thing that a lot of people don't necessarily link is... Uh, the length uh, at which the the financial crisis took to build up, and I, I think to a degree people believe that you know when what we had in in two thousand seven and two thousand eight was something that was truly a product of, of say the prior year or two, and it really wasn't. It, it was it was a, a quite a, a a lengthy period of time building up. Well, I'm very glad you say that. I mean, the way I think about my book if you take another uh, literature, is I'm talking about the origins of the First World War, not the First World War. And I agree with you. A lot of the books are about what happened in 2006, 2007, 2008. And my book says that past about 2003, most of the basic forces were in place. And the rest was, to use another analogy from the First World War, most people were sleepwalkers, that the thing was happening. The thing was on a path to a crisis, and very little could have avoided it. Tam Bayoumi is the author of the book Unfinished Business, The Unexplored Causes of the Financial Crisis, and The Lessons Yet to be Learned. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you can't get your phone, you're more than welcome to send us a comment on Twitter, and we can bring it up on the show in that manner, at BizRadio111, or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. I I have asked this question to a variety of people who have kind of looked at the financial crisis uh, in a larger scope, and I'd love to ask it to you. Why do you think we haven't seen some of the heads of of the banks? Obviously, fines are one thing, but but criminal prosecution is another thing. And why do you think we we haven't really seen countries, uh, governments go down that road? Well, I think that that's a very, very good question. I think uh, part of the story, at least in Europe, was that while Europe had a banking crisis, for various reasons, the governments were not really prepared to admit that their banks were in crisis. And therefore, there was a certain amount of minimizing the problems and allowing the banks to sort of what's called in the lingo extend and pretend which is where you don't admit all of the bad loans. The question in the U.S., I think, is more complicated uh, since there was acknowledgement that there had been a crisis. Um, But I think the part of it was that at a time when you have such fragility in the banking system, going after people might have been regarded as something which would have pushed things over the edge. That's the only explanation I have. And and as as you mentioned, uh, the fact that realistically there are so many elements that are kind of either tied directly into the banking sector or elements just kind of on the fringe edge that are still learning a lot of of what happened and still trying to understand what happened. Correct. 
Oh, yes. I think that the true story of sort of the, the origins of the crisis have yet to be agreed across people. And there's a lot of um, loose talk about, you know, well, it was just a bunch of investment bankers who were being naughty. Well, you know, investment bankers are greedy. That's kind of, you know, how they work. Um, and a lot less looking at what actually were the underlying forces which allowed those bankers to become so important. Tam Bayumi is the author of the book Unfinished Business. You're listening to Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by the Wharton School. Uh, because of the fact that this was such a significant event, uh, what are the policy implications that probably still need to be looked at uh, in your mind and maybe in the minds of, uh, of other people, not only here in the U.S., but I think to a degree in Europe as well because of, of the impact that they felt? Yes, well, um, I spend quite a lot of time talking about Europe. And uh, there, I think that there are still lessons to be learned, uh, in particular about the design of the euro area, which was very badly designed for a banking crisis, in that it was very difficult to give support to banks. I think that's one area that we need to think about. I think there's a wider area that we need to think about in terms of how economists can regain the trust of people and uh, be moved back to being regarded as experts who know what they're doing. And I think that requires a bit of rethinking about some of the ways that we think about uh, the connections across the world, a much more focus on the financial connections that there are between countries and within countries, and rather less worrying about I don't know the consumption function or whatever. But but does does the structure of Europe still present some of the potential problems as you kind of alluded to even though you have the euro as obviously a, a kind of a core ingredient but because you have so many different countries with so many different mindsets uh does do those problems really find themselves as ones that that potentially could continue moving forward? Oh yes, the the story I tell in my book is about the constant uh, tension between the French and the German view about what the single currency was about. So the French thought you needed a single currency in order to get an integrated economy, and therefore you should support countries along the way if they got into trouble. The Germans thought you could only, should only bring in the single currency once you got an integrated economy and therefore didn't need to support. Part of the problem with the euro area is what you ended up with was a bit of the worst of both worlds, in that you got an early currency, so you got the French early currency with the German no bailout clause, and they're still working that all out. And you can see it in the latest suggestions, for example, by President Macron of France about a, um, a euro area finance minister and again, the French yeah. and the Germans have different plans about that, which are exactly the same thing. And because the mindset on a variety of different issues is so varied, as you just alluded to, between France and Germany, but other elements within the uh, within the uh, the EU, I, I would think it would be very hard to be able to have a position like this where you could have every country uh, obviously on the same page where uh, where all currencies are are concerned. 
Oh, yes. No, it is very difficult. I mean, moving forward in uh, with the architecture of the euro area, making it better is a very, very difficult process. As we can see, President Macron has just started quite an ambitious plan, but it's now being watered down and watered down and watered down because different people have different views. And there is no sort of one person in the middle to say, this is where we go for, this is how we go forward. So... It's still a work in progress, very much the euro area. I, I guess uh, – I'm sorry. If you go ahead and finish up. Sorry. And it's still got a lot of weaknesses. I, I guess to a degree that uh, there there was a belief for, for quite some time leading up to the crisis that, uh, that the markets themselves really had the ability to kind of keep control over the banks. But, but that wasn't the case. Is, is it the case now in Europe? Um, so – Yes, the belief that you could control banking simply through market forces was what caused the belief in these banks being allowed to use their own internal risk models to define how much capital support they had for their loans. And that is still, it's being very slowly changed in Europe, but to this day, most most of the large European banks are only using their own internal risk models to define the capital behind their loans. And why would you let somebody define their own capital buffers rather than asking a regulator to do it? Now, the regulators look over these models, but nevertheless, I I document that this ability to use your own models was abused before the crisis. And I think that there still needs to be more work on that. Do, do, how does the, the the potential Brexit moving forward, how does it play into the stability of uh, of the single market right now in your mind? Well, the complication with Brexit is that London is effectively the financial capital of Europe. Right. So you have this odd situation where you have the financial capital actually physically outside of the euro area. Now, with Brexit depending on how it's agreed, a lot of that may move to other parts within the euro area, but it may well get splintered and you could end up with a situation in which um, the financial system became much more difficult to control as different countries and different cities compete for that financial pie. Do you have concern uh, about uh, here in the U.S. with where we may be headed and, and playing off of Dodd-Frank if if there are elements of Dodd-Frank that are changed in the years to come, what the impact could be on the, on the, the banking sector, but also uh, playing off of the theme of your book, kind of the North Atlantic uh, financial sector right now? Well, yes, I think there are a couple of things here. Maybe the one which I would focus in on is that past my story, as I said, was this difference between the regulation of the commercial banks, people like, um, as I say, Wells Fargo or whatever, and then the investment banks, people like Morgan Stanley or Goldman Sachs. Now, at present, that regulation has been unified, but there has been talk about Uh, bringing back Glass-Steagall, which would be a separation of commercial banking from investment banking. And if you did that, you could end up back in a situation where the commercial banks were much more strongly regulated than the investment banks, which could create opportunities for um, 
a weakening of the banking system as a whole. The book is Unfinished Business. Tam Bayumi is the author of it. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. I mean, as you look at the U.S. banking sector, um, in terms of of the regulation, uh, obviously we have uh, what we have now. But if you go back, what, 30, 40 years, uh, the the level of regulation here in the U.S. uh, was, in comparison to Europe, was even much more in trouble, correct? Well, the history of U.S. regulation is an interesting one. The um, If you go back to the 1980s, early 1980s, the U.S. actually, of course, had banks who were limited to each uh, state. Essentially, you didn't have interstate banking. So, for example, Continental Illinois, which famously went bust, operated not only only out of Illinois, but actually out of one branch in Illinois, because in Illinois you were only allowed to have one branch. Right. So there's an example. Now, what did happen in the U.S. and what actually saved the U.S. from worse harm over the crisis, there's, it was a strengthening of regulation after the uh, SNL crisis. Have you, one of the reasons I wrote this book was how come a meltdown largely in the U.S. housing market, I mean Spain and Greece as well, yeah. how come this caused a euro area depression but only a recession in the U.S.? Okay, so how come the main impact ended up in Europe, not in the U.S.? And that's one of the questions which I try to answer in my book. And we're now at a point where, uh, obviously, the change in in, in regulation, uh, it doesn't feel like, at least right now, even though you still see uh, a large number of properties here in the U.S. that are either underwater or in foreclosure, uh, that the lending market is, at least right now, going to allow itself to kind of fall into the same uh, debt issues that, that we saw a decade ago. No. Well, one of the big things which has happened is that the securitization market has uh, not really ever come back. So securitization was where a bank, a commercial bank, took a bunch of loans, normally mortgages, bundled them together and sold that as an asset. And it sold it mainly to the investment banks. So this was where the shadow banking system came in. They were selling their loans to people who didn't, weren't under the same regulation, including the investment banks. That market has really not come back. So most people are holding the loans, the mortgages that they actually originate. And clearly it's safer if you are holding it rather than you sol- sell it on to somebody else. Do you think we can get to a point, and, and obviously the, the, the U.S. system uh, and, and banking system here is is uh, different to what you see in Europe, but do you think we can get to a point where uh, all sides can be on the same page and we don't have the potential concern of having the type of crisis we saw a decade ago? Well, there's just been an agreement in the international community of a, a set of reforms called Basel III, and they've been around for a while, but they've just finally agreed on the final agreement. Um, now, the good news about that is that it looks to be a fairly good agreement. The bad news is that it's going to take a long time to get there. They right. haven't set themselves very tight deadlines. In fact, 2027 is when the entire agreement comes into force. 
Great having you on the show, Tam. Thank you very much for your time and all the best with the book. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Dan. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.